the memories. The clock is down to 48 seconds. 20 to 10, Colorado leads Nebraska. They have waited a long time for this. So many times, the red blood has come into Folsom Field, and they have gone back across the border to the north, the winner. It won't be this time. The Stories. Prukop to the corner for Carrington, intercepted! Colorado got it! Witherspoon! With the biggest play in Colorado football for years! And now, as a supplement to over 40 years worth of CU football coverage in the CU at the Game archives, here is Stewart with his CU at the Game podcast. Greetings, Buff fans from CU at the Game. This is Stuart Whitehair, publisher and editor for the CU at the Game website and your host for the CU at the Game podcast. Well, it couldn't have gotten much worse, could it? The Buffs fell to Minnesota 30 to nothing in a game which wasn't even that close. The Buffs mustered only 63 yards of offense and had Dave Platty and his CU media relations staff reaching for the record books, and not in a good way. In a moment, I will be joined by Brad Geiger and Neil Langland, and we'll dissect what went wrong in the debacle and what it means for the program going forward. Before we begin our tips for the Arizona State game, we'll also take a side trip to talk about the Pac-12 South, which went 0-5 in non-conference games last weekend, and what that could mean for the Buffs and the remainder of the 2021 season. If you haven't already, please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast, which is available at many popular sites, as well as at the CU at Game website. The Minnesota game was one of the worst games CU has played in years, coming on the heels of one of the best games CU has played in years. Which buff team will show up in the heat of the desert on Saturday night? Let's find out. Okay, and we are back. And joining me is Brad Geiger from south of South Denver. How's Brad doing this evening? Uh, recovering. Saturday was a challenge. Um, but, uh, you know, back in the swing of things, ready for another game. Okay. And looking down upon Larimer Square from downtown Denver is Neil Langland. How are you 48 hours after the debacle that was the Minnesota game? Well, I was released early for my 72-hour hold. So I guess I'm doing better. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's nice little have little gallows humor that uh, yeah. we can laugh about the 30 to nothing loss to Minnesota that was, if anything, worse than the score would indicate. Won't spend too much time on the stats. I think everybody knows fully well that CU had a grand total of 63 yards of total offense. One of the records that uh, is not noteworthy, and of course, that's including the final drive when uh, Drew Carter came in and led the Buffs for two first downs and 29 yards of total offense. So before the final drive of the fourth quarter, CU had 34 yards and four first downs for the entire game. So Neil, I mean, uh, post mortem, 
is normally not specifically supposed to mean after death, but uh, we're talking definitely about a postmortem. We're talking about the Minnesota game. So what are your impressions, takeaways? What do we got coming out of that game? Well, it's postmortem for me, at least in terms of hope, because I've given up really, I think, on this season um, for a few reasons. One is I think the coaching staff is trying to use a cliche, a square peg in a round hole. I, I just don't think that Mr. Lewis, um, as a freshman who is primarily a running quarterback in high school, is quite ready to adapt to being a pocket passer. And second, I think he's being coached in such a way as to not make a mistake. And he's any time that there's any possible risk on a pass pattern that he recognizes, he's hesitant. Third, we were worried about the offensive line earlier. And I I think when up against a decent front, a decent front seven, they had difficulty making line calls. They were blown assignments. And then just on most plays, there was at least one of our offensive linemen that missed a block or was beaten on a block. So I'm very cautious now about thinking that the offensive line can execute the offense that has been scripted for them. And for that reason, I was hoping to hear that they were adapting and going to change their offense substantially in some way. But if they're going to keep going down this same road with the same calls, same game plan, same call sheet, uh, I think it's going to be a long, long year. Well, Brad, one stat, there were 11 different offensive linemen that played. Colby Purcell, the starting center, was ill. He was not injured. He just was not a, a full go. Practiced with the first team all week, and the game time decision didn't play. Noah Finsky comes in the first play and snaps the ball through the hands of the quarterback. 10-yard loss, and it went, if anything, downhill from there. Frank Phillip is making his way back. He did play 29 snaps. Max Ray was hurt. He only played 11 snaps. Like I say, 11 different offensive linemen played. None more than 35 of the 45 offensive plays. So not that we're going to give a pass to the offensive line, but uh, owing to the fact that the offensive line didn't have the same five guys out there for more than three plays at a time, is there any hope for the offense going forward, or is this just the end of the end? Hope is, um, is there a marginal chance for improvement? Unquestionable. You know, was Brendan Lewis hesitant because there wasn't time, or was, it, was there enough time, but Brendan Lewis was hesitant? That depends on the play. There were times where there was sufficient protection that a good quarterback could have done something. That said, 11, people, 11 offensive linemen played, and as Neil pointed out, it be, would be very difficult to find any single play where every assignment was right. I understand that offensive lines are about chemistry and how you can play, but that looked like a four-year-old's chemistry set, if that's what we're thinking about. <laughs> the idea that this offensive line or whatever assemblage of people we call an offensive line is going to get better is only possible because they cannot get worse. It was a debacle up front, and that led 
two, or at least was exacerbated by a debacle at quarterback. And by the time the running backs got the ball, they were facing what looked like a kindergarten recess coming at them. No, it's just, again, if you want to try to scrape hope out of the bottom of this rotten barrel, maybe that's it. Okay. Well, it does seem to the non-coaching casual observer from the 72nd row that the offense is not designed to play to Brandon Lewis's skill set. We were watching that the safeties were eight yards off the line of scrimmage, daring Colorado to pass the ball, knowing full well that we wouldn't. I mean, we had our token one pass. He's had one long pass in each game. He had the one long pass against Minnesota, which was more like a punt. Both the receiver and the defensive back were just sitting there waiting for the ball to come down so they could fight for it. So, Neil, is it Darren Cheverini? Is it the fact that we have no depth at quarterback, that we can't let Brendan Lewis be Brendan Lewis? He's, he ran for 3,000 yards in high school, and yet we do not seem to have any run-pass options. We do not seem to have any plays that would play to his ability to run the ball. Is that his fear, his hesitancy, or is it falling on the coaching staff to not designing a game plan which fits his skill set? Brad Stewart, I was alluding to that, I think, in the opening remarks, is that the square peg and round hole, I, I think that they have to adapt to what it is he can do rather than trying to mold him in season and to what their offense desires to be. There has to be more RPO. There has to be more rollouts. There has to get him on the move so that he can throw. He seems to throw decently well when he's on the run, at least to the right side. And I think part of the problem is that the coaching staff may not yet trust him to read a defense, to pick out, uh, identify who the schematically, at least, who the correct receiver is, and then to find that receiver on the field so that they may be restricting the call sheet in such a way that it becomes just very predictable. I'm not sure what else they can do uh, to try to improve their passing game. I, I need to ask a question at this point. I watched on TV. I wasn't able to follow the secondary. Were receivers getting separation? Was that part of the problem? Well, I think there were, and I think Brad alluded to it, that there were times that on the, you know, the one, two, the, the second progression, there were open receivers, but it was a tight window. It would require a good pass. And the fact that, Brandon Lewis only has one interception on a tipped ball is uh, not so much, I think, a, an indication of his skill set as his unwillingness to take a chance. And the fact that he's unwilling to take a chance means that he's on to his one, two, three. Nope, nobody's wide open. I'm going to start running the ball. And then we end up with a, either an incompletion, a sack, or a seven-yard pass on third and ten. Brad, would you concur? Oh, unquestionably. I've never rarely seen a quarterback so scared to actually release the ball. Um, our receivers were not running free. 
um, especially later on. But there were times, particularly on quick reads, that passes could have been completed. Brendan Lewis was from the first play seeing ghosts, seeing people that weren't there, feeling pressure, and they did get pressure, but it didn't usually come immediately. The sacks, and what, there were 73 of them or whatever. Um, <laughs> well, that'd be four were, for a team that had zero coming into the game. And many more pressures. Yes. And many more times that that the play was broken up because people got within the general vicinity of Brendan. But it, it was a hesitation at all times. Again, when we talk about skill set, I'm not sure I agree with you, Neil. I think they're making him try to read. And he looks, when he looks at a defense, he looks as confused as I would looking at hieroglyphics. There's just, he does not trust his reads or he doesn't make the reads. And I, I mean, there were times when it was obvious to everyone in the stadium that somebody was open for in the flat and he couldn't see him. It seems like he got back at his feet set and then made a move as if to cock to throw and then stopped, looked elsewhere and then started to run, but oftentimes not in time to avoid a sack or pressure. Right. And I, in a way, I feel sorry for the young man because they're trying to make him something he is not yet prepared to be. And to support that, um, the series that Drew Carter had, maybe it was a difference in play calling, but he dropped back, set his feet, and released the ball and found an open receiver. And I wonder if that's just the experience that Carter has of being a throwing quarterback. Part of it, but also remember, he's, he, wasn't, he was facing a very different defense. Right. That's yeah. true. Yeah, there's no one more popular than the backup quarterback. And I think the thing we have to, the reality of the backup quarterback is that we've known since early August when JT Shrout was injured that this was the quarterback room. And if Drew Carter was better than Brendan Lewis, Drew Carter would have played. You know, these coaches are not trying to lose games in the name of saving Drew Carter for the future. If he was the better quarterback in practice and the better quarterback in fall camp, he would have been the starting quarterback, just like Tyler Lytle was passed over, you know, for Sam Neuer. You know, we didn't expect that to happen last year, but they went with what the quarterback they thought would give them the best chance to play or best chance to win. Before we abandon the debacle of the Minnesota game, let's try and put a little bit of a positive spin on things. Um, the defense, for the most part, played well. There was only 13 to nothing at halftime, despite the fact that the offense had a grand total of three first downs and seven total yards. Nate Landman was Nate Landman, and Guy Thomas had a good game. There were some decent play. Brad, would you agree that the, the defense did what – was necessary to win. He said it was 30 to nothing. It was 30 points, but two turnovers in the second half, you know, if given any semblance of an offense, the defense did enough to win. Oh, unquestionably. You know, I think it speaks to how powerful the concept of teamwork is that we have not yet heard that anybody from the defense punched anyone from the offense. <laughs> it was, uh, 
especially in the first half. There was nothing wrong with the defensive effort. As a matter of fact, there was much to compliment on the defensive effort. You could see that they would come out after yet another three and out and punt by the offense, and the defense seemed ready. I don't know if it was obvious watching on television. It was a dark, it was a hot, grueling day in Boulder. And to be wearing black at altitude on the field for what 42 minutes of a 60-minute game. The defense did all that you could expect from them. They wore down. Um, you saw more arm tackles in the third quarter and then the, by the fourth quarter. But the enthusiasm never seemed to wane. The people seemed to play. Uh, Chris Miller's injury was sad, if perhaps not expected. But there was enough. There is enough talent. There is enough want to. And there is enough coaching on the defensive side to win any game where the offense is even marginally effective. Okay. Neil, you got any positives to take? How about the uh, Josh Watts, uh, our punter extraordinaire, average over 50 yards a punt, at least uh, special teams. How about that? Something to uh, finish off and say that there was a positive to take away from this game. Uh, The punting was immaculate. It made drives longer and may have saved uh, a couple of drives from being scoring drives. Um, I agree with Brad that that 42 minutes of possession time took away maybe two or three possessions that CU could have had that on which Minnesota did or would not have scored. And even though Minnesota drove the ball down the first their first possession and made yardage and seemed to be running their offense smoothly, our defensive coaches adjusted and was able to quiet that offense and to keep them contained for, for almost all of the first half. Any kind of offense in the first half and the game would have been some sort of a tie around 10 or 13 apiece. But they had so many reps. And, and I think if we compare the offensive linemen that pay, uh, played with Minnesota they were large, much larger than ours. Our offensive line are much larger, really, than our defensive line. Very mobile. One cannot, one defense cannot hold off that sort of an advantage for very long. Yeah. I think CU, I agree with Brad, CU did a great job of hanging in there and giving it everything they had until there just wasn't any more to give. And I think the offense was great. Or excuse me, the defense played well. And they are obviously the strength of the team. And if CU is going to win any games this year, the offenses, excuse me, I keep saying that the defense will have to start creating turnovers. That is their one weak spot that they don't seem to be getting a pass rush and they haven't caused many turnovers as yet. That's, that's both the bright spot and a hope of what I hope happens soon. Okay. Well, for those wondering the, Colorado hasn't scored now in seven quarters. So being morbid about my stats, I had to go back and see if there's anything in the record book about longevity for not scoring. And there is records in the book about CU holding opponents not scoring, but I didn't see anything about scoreless for CU. And so the crack CU at the game staff, which is, well, you know, me, didn't have to go very far. The first three games the University of Colorado played in 1890, the Buffs were shut out. 
lost 20 to nothing to Denver Athletic Club in the very first game in CU history. The second game in CU history, they lost 103 to nothing to Colorado Mines. I'm sure there's got to be a plaque somewhere in Golden to that game. In Golden, yes. And then 44 to nothing to the Colorado Springs Athletic Club. In the fourth and final game of the 1890 season, the Buffs did score, losing 50 to four to Colorado Mines. And the same team in 1891 got shut out three times. Um, so there's at least 12 quarters in there. Somewhere in CU's history, probably a little bit more than 12 quarters. So we've got a little bit further to go before we have to worry about setting a record for not scoring at all. Now, before we turn to Arizona State, I want to give a little bit of time to the Pac-12 South in general to make us feel better about other people not doing well either. Week one, the Pac-12 South went five and one with only Arizona losing and actually putting forth a pretty decent effort as we've come to find out against BYU. Uh, It was like a 24 to 16 game and the rest of the Pac-12 won all their games. Week three, we flipped the script and the Pac-12 South went one and five with only USC's win over Washington State. So there's five non-conference games in the Pac-12 South. Pac-12 South was favored in all those games and lost all five. So if Colorado had beaten Minnesota, we would be having some champagne tonight talking about CU's chances of being maybe the second best team in the Pac-12, at least the Pac-12 South division. And yet here we are lamenting, you know, being shut out. So any thoughts about the rundown? Uh, Utah lost in triple overtime to San Diego State. Arizona inexplicably lost to Northern Arizona. UCLA got beat by Fresno State. And Arizona State lost to BYU. So does that give us hope that Colorado, if they can figure out how to run the ball or throw the ball or do anything on offense, does it give us hope going into Pac-12 play? There is every reason to believe that with the exception of USC, we will not face a better team than Minnesota, which is tragic and frightening because Minnesota is a middle-of-the-road Big Ten team, but Arizona State, who was supposed to be better, never really got into it against BYU. They were out early. UCLA gave up something just short of 600 yards to Fresno State. Yes. And the Los Angeles newspapers have not yet called for the immediate execution of Chip Kelly, but (laughs) the theory is there. USC's already fired their head coach. Arizona, I mean, we knew they were bad, but man, in a game that they appeared to not much have much chance in, they lost to Northern Arizona, which I'm told by my uh, expert on that conference is not a great team to begin with. Little bro. Um, little bro. It's, it's just the Pac-12 South, San Diego State's probably a better team. And certainly BYU is a better team than some of the other losses, but it's just nobody looked good. Um, And again, if we had any hope coming out of this, anything to hang our hats on, we'd think we could compete in the back 12 South, but 
nobody in the Pac-12 South should think they can compete with anybody. <laughs> so how about, Neil, does that give you uh, some optimism going forward? The fact that uh, other, we knew Arizona was bad, but we didn't know it was this bad. And now Utah and UCLA have shown their warts and Arizona State. Yeah, it's uh, we'll see. You know, everybody's got a loss now in the Pac-12 South. I watched the end of the ASU-BYU game, and I was amazed at how ineffectual their offense was against BYU. I don't know how good BYU's defense is, but I was shocked, really, at their relative impotence on that side of the ball. Um, They had opportunities at the end to drive and simply could not move the ball. I saw also the end of the UCLA game. Enough time to watch Fresno march the ball down not once but twice in the last five minutes and complete just about every pass against a very soft UCLA pass defense. In fact, I think it was the same pass patterns on both drives that they were able to use. I can't figure out what was going on with UCLA's coaching staff playing that defense. And I was impressed with the way Fresno was able to just drop back and get the ball in the air and gain yardage. Most impressive. So from those, I think our defense matches up well with Arizona State, and we should be able, I think, to keep their offense in check. I didn't really get a flavor for ASU's defense, so I'm not sure how (laughs) or if we're going to be able to score or if we are able to move the ball, how we will do that. I'm hoping we'll be able to run the ball some. And as far as playing UCLA, their offense seems strong. They've got a great line and running backs. I think now their pass defense is suspect, such that if we can attack that, we might have a chance of beating them. So I know we're focusing on ASU, but I do have some hope. There. Yeah, hope springs eternal, or at least has blind spots. So let's let's talk a little bit about Arizona State. Uh, led by the you know the offense begins and ends with Jaden Daniels, the quarterback. Just some numbers: he was a freshman All-American in 2019. He's on all the quarterback watch list. You know the Davy O'Brien, Maxwell, all the award preseason watch list for this year. Second team preseason All Pac-12. In three games, he's got 572 yards passing. And in case you're wondering, Brendan Lewis has 246. But one thing that stood out to me, uh, Daniels also has 173 yards rushing in three games. That's a six-yard average. So for those scoring at home that like to wince at certain statistics, Jane Daniels has almost as many yards rushing as Brendan Lewis has passing. Passing game, there's Ricky Purcell and Andre Johnson. They've got some... Decent talent, but not the Brendan Ayuk and the you know the players they've had in the past that are now in the NFL. They the receiving core is not what it once was. Rely heavily on the rushing attack. Rashad White is not only the leading rusher with 219 yards, he's also the leading receiver with 15 catches. But in watching the BYU game, the guy that scared me was Danielle Nagata, who is super quick. He reminded me kind of like of Tyreek Hill, that he's not a big guy, but he seems to run at a different speed than everybody else on the field and has 
three, he has three touchdowns, a touchdown in every game that Arizona State has played. So we have a good defense. They have a good offense. Would that be, Brad, would that be your simple thumbnail sketch of what we've got going on Saturday night at 8.30 ESPNU? Well, I mean, the same verse this week, strength against strength. They will put up yards. Our coverage is still not what we would hope. And we gave up some long plays to a uh, Minnesota game that is a team that is not built for long passing plays. We have to tackle better in the secondary, um, but there is a danger that they could put up a lot of yards, but they are not particularly efficient in the red zone. Um, so if we can avoid giving up you know, big touchdown plays, it feels like this defense could hold them down. The, uh, the experts at the sports books have the over-under on this at 44 and a half, which wow. through a quick scroll is the lowest over-under on the board tied with <laughs> Colorado State, Iowa. And wow. the nice part is we are not the least efficient offense in the state. Um, Colorado <laughs> State is deplorable. And so nobody's expecting a shootout. It, would, it wouldn't surprise me if Arizona State puts up yards, but as I said, I think we can hold them on points if the defense can just be allowed to stop and drink a cup of Gatorade before they have to go back on the field. Yeah. Well, Neil, give, let me give you a couple of numbers here. You talked about the, you know, the defense. They are ranked 11th in the nation in total defense, Arizona State. Now, that does include stats – from games against UNLV and Southern Utah. So do have to take that with a little bit of a grain of salt. The problem with the the loss to BYU is that it was self-inflicted. There are four turnovers and 16 penalties. Now, can we hope for that much on Saturday night? Is it the coaches that are suspended? We forget that uh, Arizona State supposedly is under NCAA investigation and supposed to be spiraling out of control because of the fact that they're going to have these looming penalties from the NCAA doesn't seem to bother them too much on the field. So are we going to be able to score against this defense? Is it just going to be like you say, we hope that we get two turnovers for touchdowns or maybe a punt return for a touchdown. Is that CU's best and last hope for this game? Well, I think you're right. We don't have reliable data. We only have three data points and some of those are against weak teams, as you mentioned. My sense is that CU should be able to run the ball some if they start widening their offense, start adding the RPO and some other things that would give us a certain advantage. I don't think we're going to be able to dominate the line of scrimmage on offense. So there's going to have to be some game planning that has stuff in it we haven't done yet. and. If we can improvise a new game plan and just stay away from penalties, I think we have a chance of putting up maybe 17 points on offense. That means the defense is going to have to play lights out again. And I I can't see how CU is going to outscore ASU because they they have some nifty players. The ones that you mentioned, their quarterback on medium-range throws, is has a quick release and he's accurate. 
he's also a threat to run. So they're going to be tough to contain. I, I think that they're going to score hopefully not more than 20 or 25. But I think it's going to be hard for us, especially third, fourth quarter in that heat for the defense to do anything like they did last week. I don't think ASU's offense is as good as Minnesota's, so the defense should have more success. But as Brad said, they can't play 90 snaps. Just impossible. Yeah. Well, any upside, Brad, the fact that uh, Herm Edwards is 0-2, against the University of Colorado the last time the teams played, they were supposed to play in 2020, but of course, Arizona State, for some reason, had COVID issues. Maybe it was the fact that they had official visitors coming in every weekend. Well, unofficial official visitors coming in every weekend. But the last time CU went to the desert, Arizona State was ranked. They were close to being ranked. They were ranked the first three weeks. They're now out of the poll, thanks to BYU, but went to the desert and came away with uh, an upset win. So all the players on the CU team know nothing but wins, and Herm Edwards has yet to defeat the black and gold. So any any positive you can drain out of that at all that we're hearkening back to the fact that Mike McIntyre and Mel Tucker are 2-0 and against Herm Edwards as the coach of Arizona State? Probably not. No. (laughs) When you ask about turnovers and, and, you know, penalties, I guess my response is how in the world could you ever expect this team to be undisciplined when the coaches couldn't comply with the most basic COVID rules? If discipline starts at the top, there isn't any at Arizona State. I don't know that different coaching, different teams that won in different times under different coaches means a whole heck of a lot. I'm concerned about the fact that it is going to be something like 97 degrees during this game. That stadium's always terrible and always challenging. No, I don't know that our history matters all that much. What matters is these are two teams that need to figure out if they can play good football because bluntly, neither one has yet. Yeah, well, Arizona State had all the plaudits at least coming into the BYU game, um, how much of that was actually deserved. They were two and two in 2020, and yet everyone was talking about everyone. They had so many players coming back. They had Jaden Daniels, obviously, as an established quarterback. And yet they looked fairly human against BYU Looking back, Neil, to the fact that they let one get away with BYU, you could also say that this is the start of conference play. They have a big game at UCLA next weekend, which if you're an Arizona State fan and you were looking at an undefeated ranked team, you would be much more interested in playing UCLA, the team that beat LSU. So before last Saturday, it looked like Arizona State at UCLA might have been for the Pac-12 South Division. Can we get any hope out of the idea that the Arizona State players might be taking this game for granted and be looking forward to UCLA and maybe not be as primed for this game as the CU players might be? Well, let me try to answer um, in two parts. I think the atmosphere at BYU, the home field advantage there is significant. They have some altitude, but it's very loud, very enthusiastic. And 
ASU had some procedural penalties, false starts, and so on as a result of crowd noise. They won't have that at home. They'll have the home field advantage then. And two, I think Arizona State may be looking past us. We may be able to sneak up on them, at least initially, in the first half. And that's why I was thinking about a revised game plan that we might be able to surprise them with some looks on offense and defense and maybe create a turnover or get some big gains out of it, maybe even score. But I, I think at some point ASU is going to wake up and just have just enough to get by the boss. Sorry to jump the gun on predictions. <laughs> uh, um, yeah. As is your want. So Brad, you know, getting to the idea of, Surprise plays, trick plays, coming up with something different to make the offense get more than one first down per drive. Utah changed quarterbacks with some success. Arizona changed quarterbacks this past week. USC changed quarterbacks this week to a high degree of success. I mean, Slovis was injured, but the backup came in and scored 45 points. Washington State changed quarterbacks. So any reason that... uh, you can't just throw caution to the wind and put Drew Carter in to start the game just to surprise things and have a different game plan than what Arizona State's preparing for. They won't do it. Whether or not there's a benefit to it for those of us sitting out here, I think, uh, you know, although Durrell gave some lip service to it today, it's a terrible place to do it. Throw him to the wolves on the road. I think at this point, this staff has to try to make do with Brendan Lewis. You'd hope that they can coach it up better, but I think the idea that we're going to throw the true freshman in there, I mean, he played fine in the fourth quarter of a blowout. This is not Steven Montez coming off the bench and having a great game. Drew Carter was fine. I don't see any reason to believe that he is an expert I would prefer that they come out and surprise everybody by running the darn ball. Yeah. Um, uh, by having an offensive line ready to play. Yeah. Um, yeah. It would be nice if the defense could surprise somebody with the turnover. <laughs> could, could I add something just to that? I, I think part of this game plan thing on offense is they need to tell Mr. Lewis that it's okay occasionally to turn the ball over. It's occasionally you're going to throw interceptions at some point in your career. It's time to start trusting yourself a little bit and just make throws. Even though you may not see the big window, throw it up, trust your receiver, and at least give the receiver a chance to fight for the ball. You're just holding it and not giving – it's like giving up uh, a base on balls in baseball. There's nothing your defense can do with that. So they, they need to start encouraging him to take some risk. Right. Okay. Well, now you were a few minutes premature, but now it's time to tell us your prediction. Uh, how do you see, Neil, how do you see the game playing out? What would you be your, your prediction for a score? Okay. I did sort of jump the gun a little bit, and I'm going to revise a little bit and say I think the offense, for whatever reason, wakes up and scores 20. So, or that we get some sort of special teams or defensive score or a short field that allows us to score 20. 
I'll take a leap of faith on the defense and say they're not going to give up more than 25 so that CU does have an outside chance at a win if they can control the ball a little bit on offense. How's that? I'm trying to be positive here. Okay. Well, Brad, you talk about the over-under being so low, and it's about a 13, 14-point spread. So if Vegas is right, it's probably about a 28 to 14 Arizona State game. What would be your prediction for the game? I fear they're right. And, yeah, I'm disappointed and I'm frustrated, and I share all of your thoughts with your Sunday essay. This offense is going to have to prove it to me. I think 14 points, maybe 17. This feels to me like a 25-14 game, Arizona State. Okay. Well, as you know, my my tips, my prediction shows up on Wednesday morning on the website with my written tips. And again, that's see you at the game. We want you to come and see what I have to say. But for now, we're going to leave that as your predictions. Neil, any final words of wisdom before we sign off for our Monday night podcast? I would say try not to be too critical or to be too glum. I'm I'm fighting this as hard as anyone. And I'm hoping that what you were saying in your earlier remarks about the resilience of the team that you and Brad observed all throughout the game, that they were still giving it their all at the end of the game. I'm hoping some of that transfers and allows CU to at least give a good account of themselves and show something that there may be some potential for this team to develop later in in the year. Okay. Well, Brad, taking off of that, what's your final words of wisdom for uh, Arizona State tips? Change is possible. Improvement is not just possible, but likely. We're already going to stick with this, so let's hope and believe. I still like the head coach. I much like the defensive coaches. We will see if this offense cares enough about Darren Chavarini to step up. And we'll see how it goes against Arizona State. So thank you, gentlemen. We'll talk again soon. Thank you. Thanks, Brad. Thank you, Stu. Thanks for listening. Again, my written tips, my weekly preview column, will be up on the See You at the Game website on Wednesday morning. If you are not a regular to the website, there is also a Friday column, Friday Fast Facts, which gives you all the names and numbers you'll need for the game on Saturday. Then the game story is published on the website a few hours after the game, with my essay for the game being posted on Sunday morning. The Minnesota loss was devastating. But, at the end of the day, it only counts for one loss in the standings. We'll see how the Buffs fare in Tempe. I'll be back next week to review the Arizona State game and preview the upcoming home game against USC. Until then, be well, stay safe, and go Buffs! Thank you for listening to our See You at the Game podcast. For links to articles and stories referenced in this podcast, go to cuatthegame.com. That's the letter C, the letter U, at thegame.com. If you have comments or suggestions, you can leave them on the website or send an email to cuatthegame at gmail.com. 
If you've enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to subscribe and share it with your fellow Buff fans. Until next time, when we will again see you at the game.